0: Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident the last best place or legends of the fall why is it that so many of the books that have defined the american west come from the same place this is breakfast in montana
1: i'm russell Rowland, and i'm aaron parrot and we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from montana one from the past and one from the present in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books.
0: So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. For this episode, we're going to talk to Mark Gibbons, who is the current Montana Poet Laureate. His uh, collection, In the Weeds, was published by Lemon Institute just uh, last year. And we're going to talk about an old friend of Mark's named David Dale, who Mark admired very much. He's sadly been forgotten through the years. He uh, put out three collections of poetry. We're going to talk about one in particular
2: called Keepers. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you for having me. It's yeah. A,
0: good good to, be, to be here. Good to be in your home. And we're here with Mark Gibbons, the current poet laureate of Montana. Yeah. How's that been? Oh, it's been
2: good, actually. I didn't know if I was going to really enjoy it all that much, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I I wasn't even sure if I wanted it, but I've gone along with the idea, and I figured that it was probably be a good idea. And uh, I'm really happy to all of a sudden be like talking about poetry all the time, and people want to know about poetry. And I find myself talking about poetry. I didn't ever talk about poetry because I always had a goddamn day job of some kind. Mm-hmm.
1: So when they when they start the legislature up, do you have to go down there and like recite a poem to start the <laughs> session? The poet laureate does? I kind of doubt that's going to happen.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So line. what was your hesitation about it? I'm curious about that.
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's Part of it is, I mean, philosophically, uh, it kind of has always bugged me, uh, the, you know, the idea of someone wearing that Mm. hat and, you know, getting it and how they get it. And, you know, from the, from the get go, I mean, I think I've been thrown into the mix of this thing from the start of it, kind of, and uh, usually made it to the governor who usually chose somebody else. And it, it appeared to me that there was, there was, you know, a bit of a selection process. I, I, uh, I figured that if I lived long enough, I would eventually probably get it, just because I was a poet who was, you know, grew up here and and wrote poems. about mm-hmm. Montana shit. That's the other thing. And just the way that I uh, sometimes throw in the uh, colloquial <laughs> language, I thought that might uh, kind of hold me back, mm. or 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 make me sort of reticent about, you know talking about stuff, I almost said it again, mm, you, you can, know, in, in a public way. Because I that's I I would I do that as a poet if I'm uh, given a reading or something, but now as the poet or as the man representing poetry in Montana, you feel like a school teacher kind
0: of, you feel sure. like
2: you're like you're teaching uh, teaching kids or something. And and I thought, well I never did like to mix those two things. You know, I never I never wanted to get in trouble. Uh and I didn't want to get the, the collaborative in trouble or the state in trouble. So it was it was kind of a, a tight rope to walk. And I didn't want to do that as the poet laureate. I wanted to be myself. I wanted to use poems that I, I use all the language that's available for me to use, which is the way I fucking talk. <laughs> yeah. You know? So that's exactly yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Hey, that's a pretty versatile word, man.
2: <laughs> it, it, it's the best, man. It is. I mean it's one of my favorites. Um, when did you start writing poetry? Uh that's easy. I started writing poetry in high school. Really? And yeah. you grew up in Alberton, so Alberton, Montana. And they have a high school there. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. Hell, hell. Where are the Alberton Panthers, a... man? We were we were we were killer in class C. Yeah, we weren't killer. We went to state one year. Where but, so is did it? you have a T it's uh it's uh it's just 30 miles down the it's down 30 miles down the clark fork from here it's heading oh, west okay. of 990. oh so you were uh, close it, to here yeah 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 okay. it, it was in mineral county and uh it is uh used to be a milwaukee railroad terminal
0: okay
2: so you know the milwaukee railroad crews in alberton would get on a train and go to deer lodge they'd turn around come back to Alberton. they get on a train in alberton go to avery idaho and they turn around and come back to Alberton. So my old man worked for the railroad. That's where I grew up. And in 1970, we had a pretty good school, you know. I was going to say,
1: so did you have a teacher there that turned you on to poetry? How did you start
2: writing? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, kind of. We had good English teachers. When I, by you know, I started high school in 68, and we had these young, this young English teacher showed up, you know, the, and she was just, you know, kind of fiery, and she taught drama, and she started her own little paperback library in the classroom, and stocked it with crazy-ass books, you know, like poetry, and, uh, and, and Camus, and all this stuff that, you know.
1: So uh, she's like a Socrates corrupting the youth of... Yeah, Congress. exactly, exactly, <laughs> and so
2: I, and I started getting more interested in reading, and the other thing she did was she, she made us read shakespeare out loud in class i I had never uh you know really been exposed to that and i didn't really know what the hell was going on Mm. for the most part but i loved it i just loved the music the sound of the language and the words and i loved reading it out loud in class Mm. Uh, It it makes a
1: huge difference doesn't it like i i don't think i really started to appreciate poetry until i met people like you and dave and saw ed Leahy read but the reading aloud
2: of it, it mm-hmm. just totally changes it well yeah i, I it's a total diff, totally different art form in a way i mean what, what what's what's on the page is an art form in a sense right and, well, then, they distinguish, and then what what happens out loud is completely different
1: they have shakespeare on the page and shakespeare on the stage They're, yeah mm, exactly. two different things
2: yeah yeah. yeah yeah totally but i think that's true of all poetry Oh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, and it's like one of my favorite poets uh, uh, was John Prine. That's Uh kind of the way I came to poetry was through songs, was through spinning records, man. You talk a lot about music and your poetry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I I love, you know, who doesn't love music? Yeah. I I, I
1: fucking uh, love music. What do you think about... uh, because this came up when it happened in my classes, but Bob Dylan went in the Nobel Prize for mm,
2: Literature—wonderful. I, I agree. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And fuck anybody that doesn't think so. <laughs> I, I, that's, just, that, that's just my own personal opinion. You, you can have your own opinion, but uh, but it's probably wrong. You, well, I mean, for me, it's wrong. Obviously, for me, it's wrong. I mean, I, uh, you know, I remember I was in, it was in a, a college class, and I remember whose class it was. It was an English class. And, uh, and I, and this, that went to this professor, you know, after the class, it was some kind of a poetry class. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, well, you know, I mean, Bob Gelman is one of my favorite poets. And he goes, yeah, I think he leans a little too heavy on his guitar. And I thought, Oh yeah, John Prine leans heavy, leaves heavy on that guitar too, but he's still just knocking them out of the park, man. Mm-hmm. He's uh, I, anyway. So that 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 was my take on on that. I mean, there's there's plenty of of uh, lyricists that aren't poets, <laughs> obviously, but that guy is, Dylan is, and so is Prine. Yeah, different, totally different poets, but uh, no, you know, I I agree that, completely yeah. with you. So I, I, I kind of came to it through that, through music, you know, but then this teacher was kind of opening us up. And then I was like a junior in high school when the Montana Arts Council, for the first time, started putting writers in the schools, mm-hmm. sending right. writers out into the schools. And yeah. so, you know, we had this great old superintendent who really wanted to educate kids to them, absolute best ability. And so he ordered one of these writers to come into our school and they sent a uh, sign up list to the English class, you know, the juniors and seniors who wants to go and spend two weeks in a poetry workshop with this writer from the arts mm. council, get out of the English classroom and go hang out with some dude from somewhere else for, yeah. okay, I'm on. We, and a lot of us signed up and the guy that came, that showed up at, uh, at our school was this, uh, young, uh, native american writer named james welch oh really yeah holy cow yeah. that's amazing so jim welch uh comes wow. in he's just this just this nicest quiet kind of meek guy and later on i remember talking to lois about it i think it might have been his last residency huh. <laughs> we, we 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 ended it for him but i think <laughs> i think i remember lois saying that he mm. hated teaching he hated doing that because he just wasn't that personality, you know? Right. But but so he came and he showed up and taught us poetry. And the way he taught us poetry was, he read us what he was working on. His oh, wow. first collection, Writing the Earthboy Forty. Writing the Earthboy Forty was, uh, you know. So he was sharing these poems like in my first hard springtime, Harlem just off the reservation. Uh, you know, Christmas on Moccasin Flats. All these great freaking poems that he wrote about living between Browning and Harlem and, uh, and all that he encountered, uh, you know, heritage wise and, and landscape wise and all that stuff in a poetry kind of way. And, uh, it was, it was incredible. I just blew my mind. And so he, he, and he, you know, had that Hugo sort of instructional thing, right about, what you know, mm-hmm. write about where you're from, and bring those images into whatever you want to say. And uh, so started doing that when I was, you know, like about 16, and I thought, this is just the greatest shit in the world. Mm-hmm. You can do this all by yourself, and nobody knows anything about it. Right. Mm-hmm. You can have this, and you can share it with your friends, and you can all of a sudden be what I, what I uh, termed myself later on, an occasional poet. <laughs> because every, everybody wants a poem for their birthday mm-hmm. or a poem for their a wedding or a funeral you know so i did a whole lot of that kind of stuff you know? uh out yeah, just in sort of my own little world no i noticed in montana
1: i noticed that in your books um, Connemara, moonshine maybe that, i mean a lot of them are for somebody yeah yeah that one too yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So along those lines, why don't you just read this one because
2: it sort of addresses the this guy? Yeah, uh, my 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 slight ripoff of Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> or is that yes. did I pronounce that right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's him. Descartes. <laughs> Descartes. I think. Therefore, I have made myself a poet. By insisting I am a poet, after years of insisting I wasn't a poet, even though I did know it back then when I kept insisting I was just a guy who wrote the shit that came to mind. Those thoughts and observations we all have, but most don't, take the time to write down. So I became a poet by virtue of putting words on paper and publishing them in books reading them aloud, and acknowledging the proclamations of others, calling me a poet. I guess a poet is someone who is determined to be a poet, wants it enough to read and study those deemed or claiming to be poets, a mysteriously undefinable club begging absolute freedom for contradiction. (laughs) that uneasy comfort of non-conformity, constantly seeking the safety of distance to confess ignorance, fear, ecstasy, and suspicion. Poetry, the delirious diary of existence, those fragmented lingo bits gathered and strewn, a display intoning straight-on honest spews or veering into through the elliptical surreal bajibity voodoo of language voiced and heard. Our scribbled account of dreams whispered. I have made myself a poet because I claim I am. Therefore, just ask me and I will tell you, I am a poet. I think <laughs> that's great. so did you did you think about getting published
0: and and how did that happen, or was it something that you didn't even plan? Oh no, no, I mean I, yeah. I,
2: you know anybody that says right. that they only write for themselves and they never think about publishing, yeah. they're full of shit. yeah, right? because everybody wants to be heard. That's why we write, right yeah. the first the first poem that I published wasn't like in a publication. It was, um, it was written for a friend of mine who was killed in a car wreck Mm. in 1980, just prior to John Lennon's death. And, uh, and, and he was, it was alcohol related, Mm. of course. And, uh, and so I, I wound up, we were over in Bozeman at that time and wound up coming back for the funeral. We were, we were old friends. We played football together and he was just a, he, he was a river guide, and he, he was just a great guy. And uh, so anyway, when he died, it just knocked the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this poem for him. And uh, I had another friend who did calligraphy, you know. So we, we uh, I had a great portrait of him. And so we, we got this big uh, piece of hard, kind of hardback uh, cover stock type cardboard sort of thing. And this guy lettered this poem I wrote. Hand lettered this poem on a baby thing, put a picture in the middle. And the title of the poem was "Great Bear Memories Forever," and uh, and we gave it to his family. Oh. Made two or three copies, and so I mean, I felt like that was the first time I felt like I'd actually published something. Mm. And then another, and then about a year later, another uh, a person close to me died, mm. and that motivated a, a poem about her. And there was a, a sort of a magazine that was put out. In it was a, kind of a combination of West of Missoula news kind of stuff. And it, but it came out of the Missouli and the Mullen Trail. That's
1: what it was called. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And
2: uh, and so I they published this poem about her with a big picture of her in there. Huh. That was the first time anything ever got published. And but I never really thought about uh, you know how I would go about getting published. You know. Uh, in terms of like in books or anything like yeah. that, I, uh, I started to go, I started to study psychology initially because my old man was a drunk. And so I was trying to, you know, figure out human nature mm-hmm. and I wanted to understand, you know, this, this stuff I couldn't understand. And so I studied that for about a year, but I didn't really like the way they wanted me to study. And I, so I, I started dabbling in other things, drama and going over the English department, And I, at one point I went and took a a workshop from Hugo Mm. and uh, but I was so goddamn intimidated in that workshop, Uh, you know, small town kid. I was, I still haven't been intimidated by the university of Montana. It's just kind of who I am, I guess. So I, I, uh, I I dropped out of school and uh, because I didn't feel like I could, you know, compete or whatever, because I thought of it as competition. Yeah. But I wanted to, I wanted them to hear what I was working on. And I hoped that someday I'd see it in print somewhere. So it was a long process for me. And and I went back and I wound up years later taking a whole stack of shit to Hugo in 82. And just before he died, not long before he died. And, and uh, I took this big pile in you know, a ream of paper i have been working on. And I told him, I said, you know, I've been uh, driving truck and moving furniture and uh, I, I just don't have time to do anything else other than write these little poems. And I didn't know, you know, what you thought of them. So here they are and I take a look at them. And so he did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's like he's reading these things and he's looking at me like, what the hell? And he, and he finally, he says, well, this is very admirable he says that you're doing this working overtime and all this but uh, I only see one problem it's just not poetry mm. <laughs> and I was like psssh, mm. <clears throat> crash and burn so I uh, I wound up just uh, thanking him for his uh, time and well you know, he said one, one of the things he said which was a, a nice thing he tried to say something positive he said, you know, he said, human beings are funny goddamn animals. He said, for years, we'll beat our head against a wall trying to do something. And then he said, one day we'll step back and and we'll we'll look and there's a door right over there. He said, we can walk right through. He said, I think you should write uh, to try writing fiction, maybe. He said, there's there's a novel in this thing you have written. over." And I said, oh, thanks. I don't have time. I don't think to do that right now. And uh, but uh, thanks for the advice, and I and I left, and I went home, and continued to write what I called unpoetry, <laughs> which had been designated as not poetry. Yeah. But but you know it was it was it was stuff that appealed to other people that I was around, and and I, what I found was that one of the people, some of the poets that I was reading were the Beats. Mm. So I mean, so much of what I was doing kind of had that sort of beat mentality to it it was irreverent you know the, right. the fuck yous every place that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, and working class mm-hmm. and 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 uh, voicey sort of things short lines and uh so anyway i i, I just went ahead and kept doing what i was going to do and then eventually uh i'll tell you my life story uh because i decided that i needed to do something besides drive a truck and move furniture and get drunk and and screwed up all the time and my wife told me that I needed mm. to figure out a different way to survive. And so I decided, well, what if, uh, what if we had kids, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, 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 I had grown up in a, in, a, in a household with an alcoholic and I, I knew I would never do that. I knew I would never do that if I had kids. Mm-hmm. And so that would just kind of make me grow up, make me kind of pull my head out and uh, stop acting like an idiot. And so we decided, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. So we were in our thirties. We've been married for a decade, mm. partying, you know, to <laughs> having a good time. So then I, I got a job. I, I went in back to school and got a teaching degree. Okay. And and so I went and started teaching school, and that's where I met Paul Zarzyski mm. because I brought him in uh, because he was working for the Arts Council to work with my kids, and I got to sit down, and work with him in that, in that classroom environment. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this wonderful book that you're uh, poking around in, which was done by the Drum Lemon Institute. You know, they're an odd sort of group over in Helena, Montana. And uh, great people, great people. You haven't met them, Uh, (laughs) but no, I really appreciate this book. And it allowed me the chance to combine a couple of stuff from a couple of manuscripts, but also some really old things I've mm. thrown in here, and then some relatively new things that come in at the end. Yeah, I but, noticed that. But there is one that's in there from that workshop that I did with, oh, really? with Zarzyski, so maybe I'll read that at some point. Well, what do you I want? don't know if this is it. It's probably not. But just
0: in reference to your upbringing, mm-hmm. I thought this is a really long one, so don't read the
2: whole thing. But Oh, just, just give them a the taste? Yeah. Upon asking my old man why he never wrote, he didn't have time to write, he had to work, he had to eat. Writing was a luxury for college boys, for rich kids, for those who had nothing to say. He didn't have time to write, he had to work, had to feed and clothe, he didn't have time to dream. Time to entertain the crowd who prattled and pattered after drama and rumor and swooned over pencil-thin mustaches, tuxedos, and push-up bras. He didn't have time for nonsense, didn't have time to play. He went to work when he was eight years old. He didn't have time to write. He had to earn what he could. Nothing was given to him except the last rites when he was 12 years old. Pneumonia and nothing to be done but plan for the funeral and wait. He had to work. He didn't have time to die or write. He had to dig and serve for rich kids. He had to eat. He had to feed his brothers and sister and mother, his father digging somewhere, prospecting with a bottle. He didn't have time to write, but he stole time to read, time to drink. And think. He didn't have the mind to drink with the right people, with the in crowd, that class who looked down on his kind. He didn't have time to read between the lines or lube the greasy wheels whose pantries overflowed with moldy loaves while they sneered, bemoaned, and groaned about the god-awful sounds of the growls from the street, those empty belly roars of the filthy brats walking by outside, seen through shears and lace. He didn't have time to write. He had nothing to say that anyone would buy. Yeah, that's a great one also. So how much of that attitude do you think that you have? Oh, a fair amount. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. Actually, you know, I've all I've thought about it. I mean, you know, the, there's nothing about the poet laureate trip. Right? Mm-hmm. You're doing more of this kind of thing. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you're talking about yourself all the goddamn time. Right. And, and you're thinking about things. And, you know, one of the things that I, I realize is that, you know, I'm, I think boys maybe uh, do uh, intentionally. Try to maybe model father mm, uh, sure. uh, uh, behavior, uh, but I'm a lot like my mother. Oh, really? I'm a lot like my mother. You know, I mean, I have both of those people inside me. She was just, she was really funny and smart and and quick and uh, and full of, you know, uh, she was full of it too. <laughs> you know, she was full of piss and vinegar, but. And and, uh, and and she got along with people. And my old man was more reserved and secluded. I mean, he he did fine, uh, and he, and everybody who worked with him loved him. Mm. But uh, but you know he and he was one of those drunks who uh, uh, drank a lot for a long time, and then at a certain point, you know, he hit a wall of uh, of just becoming this binge kind of a drunk. Uh-huh and go into these blackouts mm. of weeks to months oh, of not, no, nothing. I mean, he yeah. wasn't like a maintenance drunk, you know what I mean? Uh, uh yeah. and, but he was, he was one of those guys. Okay. He wow. would, yeah. He, so he would, you know, he would go through a fifth to two fifths a day sometimes right. and just be, you know, totally, uh, totally gone when he was gone. And then when he was there, he was just, sharp and smart and a great guy it was just a it was a schizophrenic it was that and and it was that whole alcoholic unpredictability from a child's point of view Mm -hmm. not for knowing which shoe is going to drop or or what the fuck is going on Mm -hmm. next you know and always worrying about when it's going to happen because you know it's going to come right so there was that aspect to it uh, I had a great deal of respect and love, obviously, for both my parents, but I have both of those people inside me. Sure. But the but the whole anger uh, and there's plenty to be angry about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, in the world, yeah. and that all comes right from my old man for the most part.
1: Mm. Um, you know, when we talked about this book before for the uh, book festival, that the same thing came up that a lot of these poems in in the weeds are. There's anger in there, like Richard Fifield said. This book is a flamethrower. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I found the book really redemptive and funny, and there's an arc to it, almost like a novel. There is. You know, it, it's like one of those long pro uh,
2: poetry novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't think it. You know, uh, there are ever like two or even, maybe there's two, but n- never three in a row that doesn't have a little bit of an of an uplift too. right uh know uh, and i you know and that's i think a lot of uh i, I you know when you listen to people and books i've read and whatnot things attributed to the irish is that they're, they're a pessimistic bunch of sons of bitches but <laughs> but at the same time they're the most hopeful people in the world too they are such a contradiction in and of themselves and um uh, that i think that's yeah What are they
1: saying, that the Irish are never at peace unless they're fighting?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're just doing an amazing
0: job of leading me into these poems that I picked out. The Optimist. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't plan this.
2: No, The Optimist. (laughs) A slight breeze as I rake the leaves from the yard into the street, piles to be collected in the next few weeks by the sons of the city, fathers. It must be the farmer in me that so enjoys this fall task, or the little kid curious to see worms, molds, beetles, and bugs, treasures uncovered on the ground, cigarette butts, bottle caps, God knows what, a Burger King french fry bag. And it is a rare moment anymore when people populate their front yards outside their house to greet folks on the street like this old guy on his bike loaded down with everything he owns in wire panniers each side of the rear tire his front basket battened down with a bungee suspenders wool pants and greasy frayed coat he stops to watch me whisk the leaves into the gutter. I nod and speak. Howdy. He grins, not a tooth in his head. Mm -hmm. Nice day, I say. You must be an optimist, he shoots back. A gust of wind kicks up and I laugh. Well, yeah, I guess I am. He patters on about an early snow. He can feel it in his bones. I listen. We chat about the weather, the futility of man, as I continue to rake the leaves. Yes, sir, I'll definitely say you are an optimist, (laughs) he repeats as he pedals away. I pause to survey the job, the leaves, the lawn, the street, and wipe a bead of sweat trickling from my brow. A snowflake appears on my sleeve then another, and others dot the leaves. Looking up, I watch them flutter through the trees' stark branches, then resume raking. It seems important to finish before dark.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. That's great. It's probably, it's probably an Irish saying, but the uh, difference between a pessimist and an optimist, as the pessimist says, man, things could not get any worse. And the optimist says, well, sure they can. <laughs>
2: That's an Irish thing, for sure. That's yeah. great. Speaking of Irish, you want grandma? Yeah, That's sure. I'm here, it's the next one. I mean, I, I started looking at this the other night, and, and I was reminded of what you said when you guys took the drive Myers? or whatever, because – I mean, I started reading these one after the other, and I thought, you know, I do get kind of a kick out of reading this. this. That's what an egotist I am. Uh, So, Grandma. Rode the Greyhound from L.A. to Montana every year, holding her rosary, her water, the bus tires to the road, and watched the moon glow out her window, the same moon she'd wished on in Connemara before she followed her husband from Galway to Butte and raised her children in Beaverhead County where she scrubbed floors and folded other people's clothes to buy eggs and potatoes she fed her kids the church her boys abandoned for the bottle their father embraced to escape his hell of digging ditches celebrate a wee bit of heaven early just in case the meek didn't make out so good. (laughs) So she lost them the way all mothers lose. Though she didn't give up, she never let go, always made the trip, prayed for our everlasting souls in her thick Irish brogue that still echoes inside of me. And that's awesome fabulous we should
1: probably explain that uh what you were talking about earlier and i have to say you know because i'm in drum woman i probably read this book in manuscript 20 times very carefully you know and then each iteration of it you have to check for typos and whatnot um, but my wife and kid and i were driving to butte from helena and we had, and we found a copy of this under the seat and uh, Nan said, why don't you read a poem out of there, Maisie? I think she read Butte Rat. Is mm. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we were on our way to Butte. There and then go. Nan got the book and started reading. And we, the entire drive, we just kept reading poems. It's like we couldn't stop. <laughs> Which I think <laughs> is rare for a book of poetry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, that's good. So how yeah. did
0: your life change when you started getting published and having kids?
2: Well, you know, I mean uh... – Like I said, uh, the the after the 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 experience, I told Zarszyski the Hugo story or whatever, you know. Mm. And said, "Well," and because I then I wrote this one that's in here, and uh, and you know, said Hugo would have loved that poem, Mm. and so it was different. I had I had uh, you know I'd been teaching for. A few years I had time had passed, it was almost a decade later, probably from that time, and so I'd, I'd matured. I guess maybe maybe became a better poet, I suppose, <laughs> may, or at least one that they were more ah. uh, inclined to because of the, the ear, because of the five beat line, maybe because of the mm-hmm. you know, because Hugo was a very distinctive. Uh, Poet, in terms of his form and his line, okay. and uh, instead of that beat line chopped up kind of thing. And, uh, and so, anyway, uh, I thought, well, maybe there is hope for me. Maybe <laughs> I should start thinking about, uh, mm-hmm. about applying, possibly, because I, th- I always kind of wanted to at least go back. Try to get into a graduate program that where I could study just the craft and spend mm. two years of time just working on writing, mm. for the most part. You know, because you couldn't find the time doing that when you're teaching school. Now, I was going to ask time, you, like, you
1: know? whether you're teaching or you're moving furniture. Like, when do you write? Do you like get up early in the morning, or when do you have time to do it? Oh, you write on napkins, or
2: well, sometimes. I mean, sometimes some things are written uh, 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 behind the wheel. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or or sometimes some things are written on weekends most of the time, sometimes after work, uh, depending on what the week was like, I guess. Uh, But, you know, one of the things I discovered was it was a lot easier for me to write with a with a with a a goddamn uh, manual labor job. Yeah. Because it didn't pull from the same well. Yeah. When I was teaching and sense. reading and, and com- commenting on kids' papers yep. and whatnot, it was like, and then it was like, the, you want to write? Well, I'll wait till the summer. Give it some thought then. No, i mean you had extracurricular shit on the weekends and stuff. There was, was always two big I'll do
1: it when I retire.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so anyway, I, I knew I wanted to do that. And, uh, and then of course the pivotal sort of moment uh for me uh was when my dad died. Mm-hmm. When he died, you know, I thought to myself because I was teaching, you know, and I was just in that predicament and I really wanted to write and but I was had a family and I was being doing the right thing and had two kids and and uh didn't he keep a poem you wrote in his wallet? My oh, old man? No, that's that's a Leahy's old man. Oh, okay. That's a great story, Yeah, me. I'm confusing yeah. that with the story you told me. No, no. But my dad, uh, when he died, I thought, because I had heard, I found out uh, after the fact from my mother and from uh, uh, somebody else, my aunt, or yeah, my aunt by marriage, that my dad was uh, he was a he was an avid reader. I mean, he was hmm. he like read everything in the Deer Lodge Library, basically, you know, on the railroad. He was always had a book and he was always reading. So he was a, he was that kind of a guy, but he he was a, he wanted to write. He was a a writer when he was young, like in high school, huh. and uh, and and but he didn't do the college thing because it was a class thing in his mind right. that he couldn't deal with. And he had to help his mother out and whatnot. He thought so. That's why I think he was a poet who never wrote. That's why I say that, right? Because I think he was that guy, but, you know, he didn't give himself a chance to pursue that because he had to provide. He had to buy shoes. He had to feed. He always had to, you know, take care of other people and he hated it. And he drank, right. That was his recreation and his way out of this world. And and then all of a sudden it it sucked him in, you know, like a Mm. vortex. But, um, so i didn't want to be that guy for no. my kids i wanted to like model for my kids you should have the balls to do what you want to do in this life even if it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. for all concerned and uh, and mm-hmm. go into debt you know we went bankrupt pam and i went bankrupt in the mid 90s well, i should say i went bankrupt i let her down the trail but uh, <laughs> you know I, what's I,
1: that I, What that poster i gave you
2: poets are born not paid <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, I went back to, uh, to, I got into the graduate school and went back there just to study prosody and, and to, and to write. And I knew that I wasn't going to get a job with an MFA. Right. You know, that was Especially ridiculous. Missouri, yeah. yeah. No. And I didn't want one anyway. I guess I didn't, like I said, I never felt comfortable really in, in universities. And so as soon as I got done with the MFA, I, uh, I wound up, uh, moving from up there on the reservation i was living up in pablo mm-hmm. and uh we, we moved back down here where we could get a job and the kids could go to school down here that was the other thing too i mean the kids were now like sean was going into high school cash was in middle school and shit was starting to happen you know i mean that it was yeah it, i don't know if you know what it's like uh you know like on the res up there but there is a there's a definite uh race demarcation oh, line sure. and and confrontation you know between between the indians and uh and and the the old the whites who've been there forever and homesteaded that place when they opened it up you know back in the hundred years ago or whatever so there there and and it was just a. I i always kind of thought it was uh i felt like there was and I shouldn't probably even say this, but I I felt like there was like a dumbing down that, that everybody, no one wanted to, my my son, Sean, who who's absolutely fucking brilliant. I mean, the man is, he's amazing, I think. And, uh, it, but he was like, kind of dumbing himself down to get along with the other kids, you mm-hmm. know, and whatnot, because no one wanted to, you know, show I think off too much. I think that's just, generally true in Montana (laughs) yeah yeah I think you're probably right Mm. yeah and so but we we thought you know moving to Missoula where where you have these bigger high schools with more opportunities and things to do you're coming in fresh no one knows you plus they went to Hellgate probably living here Uh, well uh we were actually lived over on on over on Mount kind of okay over by Brooks when we moved here and uh and so Sean went to Sentinel and then later, when we moved here, Cash went to Hellgate, so they went to different high schools. But uh, but it was good for it was good for us. It was good for all of us. This the move down here. Even though I mean, I went back to driving a truck and moving furniture, but you know, I liked it. I, I like that kind of uh, thing. It's kind of a meditation. It's sort of a Zen thing in a way. Mm. Physical labor. It's a it's a you're you're It's an interesting phenomenon. I I know I spend my summers doing construction and thinking the same thing. What am I doing? I like it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And I mean, you know, to move eighteen thousand pounds of furniture in in uh, in twenty-four hours or less, you know, and to get in a truck and then drive it somewhere and then you know, spend the night, get up in the morning, unload it again and do this over and over again, week upon week upon week that's an uh it, it sounds like drudgery uh but you're if you go to it you know if you're present in it just like a poem if you're present in it in any given moment in whatever you're doing if you're present then then you're there it becomes like a meditation.
1: No I agree with you and I think that's something I really learned from from like you and Roger Dunsmore that you know if you if you just listen to the poem or engage with it it's a whole different thing than if you're just like reading it because you have to for a class Mm. or whatever
2: or or if you're doing it silently right yeah exactly because if you force yourself to sit down with something because uh and and then you have read it out loud to yourself and and sometimes struggle with you know dipshits who don't punctuate sometimes (laughs) those kinds of things but but if you if you do that out loud then all of a sudden it, it, it takes on different kinds of meanings uh in the way that language does for us you know mm, yep so it's yeah it's i i i dig it yeah so what tell us about david dale why did you choose him david dale uh i i uh, when i'm when i i was in augusta for six years teaching high school and uh and, and then yeah. And that's where our kids were. Our second son was born in Great Falls. And, and, uh, and then my f- oldest son was in like going into the second grade, I think, when I was trying to get out of there. I mean, Not because I, I mean, it was, they were nice people. I got to really like, kind of like the people and, and, the, and the place in a way after six years, Pam not so mm-hmm. much. I mean, she was isolated uh, pretty much alone with two kids in the middle of nowhere where the goddamn wind blowed. Everything in Augusta, whether it's houses or trees, is at a 45 degree angle for that wind coming off mm-hmm. the, the, the front, you know? And uh, and so th- she was just ready to get back to civilization and she could find it. And uh, I hope to come to Missoula is kind of what I, that was the ideal. Good luck with that, right? Uh, finding a job here back then anyway. And so I I kept applying around and got a job in Ronan. Mm. That's what took us up to the reservation. Mm. And so mm. I was there for uh, you know, about four years or so and uh and uh, and here I am uh getting myself all off again. What did you ask? David, David Dale or sorry, David, Dale. David Dale. David Dale, of course. David Dale taught in Ronan. Oh, he man. was a he was an English teacher for years and then he be and he was a Spanish teacher. So he he was teaching mainly Spanish when I got there, mm. and uh, and he lives in Helena now. You say uh, he lit, He was he was born in Helena, mm. and and then he uh, he was te- he taught for like thirty some years in Ronan, and uh, and he lived in Big Arm, mm. on Elmo Bay, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, he passed away. About a year ago, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, not because of the pandemic, but I mean, he just passed away. Um, do you have um, one of
1: his poems that he could read? Yeah,
2: I'd love to. I'd love to read you. Uh, oh, that's what you've got there. I yeah, thought that was. Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is a. Uh, oh, this is the David Dale. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Letter to Gibbons from Missoula. Letter that's to Gibbons awesome.
2: from Missoula. <laughs> Dear Lumpy. Well, they're going to cut me some again, give me a brand new hip, saw off the top of the femur, screw a titanium ball into the shaft of the bone, then glue the new female part of the joint to the pelvis. Sure (laughs) hope they use super glue and not Elmer's. This time, I won't let them use a general anesthetic either. It makes me groggy. So if they screw up I'll lay some salty language on them from my sailor days, like, belay there, avast, you <laughs> bumbling, incompetent bastards. Go on back to boot camp, where even the dumbest crap heads in the world learn to use the friggin' swab, the chipping hammer, and the fucking fire hose. And get this, recruits, the way you're swabbing me out Hurts like fire, and if you chip away any more of this fucking bone, I'll bust these stupid straps, jump off this cold torture rack, and piss all over your motherfucking floor shimes with this hose I'm holding in my hand. <laughs> Come and see me at St. Pat's, will you? And be sure to bring a jug of Mr. Bush Bushmills finest. We'll have ourselves a wee nip or two. Don't worry about any trouble. I'll square it with the nun. A proper Irish lass would never give a batch of shit to a couple of fellow mix. Your buddy, Limpy. P.S. Speaking of the Navy, I'm reminded of the time at Port Said where, where we dropped anchor to take-on stores for the cruise through the Suez and Red Sea. I was manning the anchor brake, which... I'd never done before. And I took about five turns on the wheel, which was four too many. And the bosun's mate at that point of the bow was gesticulating and shouting obscenities because the anchor chain was really chewing up the deck. But (laughs) I didn't understand his signals. So a bosun's second knocked me out of the way and turned the brake back and stopped the chain. And when they checked the cap stance, on the bosun's locker there was only one wrap of chain left around it after that they kicked me off the deck force and made me a postal clerk <laughs> i guess they figured i couldn't possibly kill anybody by selling money orders licking stamps and mailing letters home that's great yeah we i mean he uh don't you know, be funny yeah exactly he was and that, and that's the thing about david was I mean, he was, you know, he grew up during World War II, and, he, and his dad was Army, so he grew up on Fort Harrison. Oh, yeah. And uh, do you want me to read you a couple yeah. of David Dale poems? Absolutely. Uh, this is absolutely. This is a classic. One of the things that David did better than anybody that I've ever read, and, and there's plenty of people that have tried to write uh, kid voice poems, uh the in the voice of, of a child mm. i think he did, was incredible at writing you, i think you emailed and, me this one and, i know, I know and, what and you're a, talking about a voice of the child this one's called army brats mm. when me and tommy smith set the field on fire and the wind blew the flames through the weeds to the place for cleaning clothes to the house for guinea pigs for experiments to the boiler building, too. You should have seen how excited everybody was. Hmm. The fort's fire red truck with all those bells and the ladder that ran up the wall with the guy who jumped out of the window and hit on his butt, real funny that day, and 10 guys holding on to the net and 20 guys on the truck and Lieutenant Goofy putting on a yellow coat running him back. The soldiers from Camp William Henry Harrison even came in Jeeps. We hoped they'd send the tanks, but they didn't. And they put it out in time and never knew we did all of it. But Mama knew, I think, because she wouldn't let me play with Tommy for a week. So then we broken out the windows of the downstairs for the doctor's quarters, me and Mary Ann, after we we played anatomy in her downstairs. (laughs) I showed her mine and she showed me hers, but she didn't have one. So we broke the windows, like I told you, and we really got in trouble then. So me and Jimmy Culberson threw those tear gas bombs we got from the munition dump at the party by the flag and cannon, and whoosh, everybody got real excited again. Oh boy, oh boy, did we ever have fun that summer? <laughs> Yeah, it's just a great voice that really he is he, he always that. devalued his poetry because it was just Fine. sort of silly kid stuff humor, you know, because he was obviously educated. He, he he went to school over here too kind of part-time for down from Ronan and got his MFA. But uh you know, he kind of there's that humor thing again. We talked about mm-hmm. earlier, you know, most serious poets don't don't employ humor, we don't pander to the crowd." And You know, that, that kind of mentality. No, yeah, and so crazy. I think David kind of looked down on his own work sort of in that way. The other thing that David and I had in common was the Milwaukee Road. His grandfather worked for the Milwaukee Railroad and lived in Alberton, so he knew Alberton too. Mm. So we became friends just by, in that old Montana way, of just knowing people from different parts and just conversations. And then we were poets. So then we, you know, we, we floated stuff back and forth. So we became readers for each other. And, mm. and uh, but there's one in here that I thought uh, would show you kind of the other side of, uh, of David. Uh, Cause he could also uh, in a child's voice, uh, write a serious poem, mm. knuckling down. Jesus. Tommy's ugly when he comes back to school after the fire last winter at the Grand Hotel in Helena, where he saved his little sister down the ladder and then went back in to find his grandma, but he couldn't. He's burned so bad and he lost her in the smoke. Mm -hmm. His face is awful, mostly scars and his ears a stub like a mushroom with the top kicked off. He tries to smile, but it scares the little kids. And the bigger ones, the dirty bastards, make noises like they'll puke when Tommy tries to join their softball or brings his cardboard for a slide down Kessler Hill. But me, I swear on Patty's grave and hope to die in Ireland that I'll remember it was Tommy taught me how to knuckle down and shoot and win all the marbles back my daddy saved for me. And then when I gave Tommy my shooter, my favorite Aggie grandma showed me in the light so I could see how the sunset was in Connemara. Me and Tommy spit in our hands and shook and swore we was friends for life. Hmm. So did he get much recognition as a poet? No, I don't think so. We did a lot of readings together, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know we read with with uh, Dave and actually uh, Dave, Thomas. Dave Thomas and David uh, David Dale was invited by uh, the Garden City Reading Series, which. Happened in upstairs in the Union Club. I know? remember those days. And, yeah. uh, and anyway. Uh, uh, so that would
1: have been in the 90s, early 90s? Yeah.
2: John Holbrook and uh, Roger Dunsmore and uh, uh, Dave Thomas and Pat Todd and, uh, and Ed Leahy we were all sort of involved in the Garden City Reading Series, and they would bring people in for each week or whenever they did it, how many times a month they did it. Anyway, they invited David, and David said, well, I have a young friend. Can I bring him with? And and he's got a book too. I had a little chap book, you know, and this was 95. So he brought me down, and so we had a chance to, to read down there, and I got a chance to meet all these people. And that yeah. was the first time I really huh. met him. So I mean, David was—he uh, was really generous. We went; we would go places. We read for audiences of two mm. uh, <laughs> at bookstores like around the state. You know, yeah. My musical career. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just that the way that those kinds of things work, and, and uh well, music usually does better than poetry. But it hmm. <laughs> depends on who the hills you know got the guitar, right? Hmm. <laughs> So are you working on a new collection? I mean, I always have stuff. I appreciated when Aaron said he, that Drum Lumman would do this book. Mm. Um, I mean, initially, he said, did you want to do like a selected or collected or something like that? And I thought, well, that might be interesting because I have a you know, a fair amount of stuff in print. But uh, I have stacks of sort of manuscripts. And there mm. are always, you know, like several that are just sitting there because... I don't send stuff out a lot. You know? mm, okay. I just kind of quit doing that kind of thing. Mm. and uh, Well, you we need to get them together and
1: we'll do a sequel and call it <laughs> Out of the Weeds.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. So anyway, I have more of that. But I mean, I'm, I'm constantly uh, writing uh, stuff you know, and then and stuff just builds up, and then yeah. eventually you, you get day. so much, and you think, no, oh, not necessarily. I I write every week, yeah, and I I write something every day, but I don't necessarily write a poem. Mm. Uh, and uh, not like Keeler. No, I was oh, just gonna say uh, that, that guy. Yeah, crakes. he man, gets up at five a.m. to write a to write a song. sonnet every day. It's like doing push-ups. Yeah, yeah. So we
0: didn't really talk about your political. Um, poems much but I wondered if you could end with this one because I really like the way you approach your the political
2: issues oh yeah I thought about this poem. did you? yeah I, I mean one? I thought about this poem and uh, so I'm glad you uh, wanted me to read it Champagne Music I watched the Lawrence Welk show on PBS last night half drunk and was struck by the blatantly overt whiteness of it like this was the model vision for reinvention to make America great again. A sea of whites first history, a legacy of church going well off, content and polite whites, smiling Germanic Christians in red, white and blue outfits, swaying slowly to the orchestra, following the white baton, waving hypnotically under glinting chandeliers, nary an off-white complexion in the bunch. Or anywhere on screen, I frantically scanned, no hint of that darker American story of a melting or melding pot. Nothing but Anglo blood bobbing to the polka beat, till Arthur stepped out to dance one of his Pat Mr. Welk style taps where he'd step tap and fetch flap in a passionate Mr. Duncan climax. No smart ass Sammy Davis Jr. act, more of a token appropriate Bojangles show of kowtow and restraint to make us feel good again generous for creating a space mm. a prominent small place in the program to recognize the physical abilities of his race mm. yes it was mighty white of us <laughs> that's awesome that's a great yeah, one. mighty white of us
1: <laughs> well this was great thank, thank you Mark, so, thanks so
2: much you can always get count on me to talk about myself <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining us for A Breakfast in Montana. This episode featured Mark Gibbons, the current poet laureate of Montana, and an old friend of Mark's named David Dale, who had a collection called Keepers. For the next episode, we're excited to talk to Deborah Magpie Erling, whose novel Red has been uh, considered a, a Montana classic since it came out a couple of decades ago and is currently being uh, developed for a TV series. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Isle of Books in Bozeman, and Isle of Books and Books in Butte. And we would also like to extend a huge thank you to the Montana Arts Council, which recently rewarded us with a grant. Thank you to them. Join us again next time.